Welcome to the third episode of the Dumberton Oaks Byzantine podcast series. I am Anna Stavrakopoulou, the Program Director in Byzantine Studies at Dumberton Oaks. We are joined today by Christina Maranci. I'm Christina Maranci. It's Maranci, Maranci, Maranja, however you want to pronounce it. And Erin Pignon. I'm Erin Pignon. I'm a graduate student in Princeton's Department of Art and Archaeology, studying late Armenian painting. Christina Maranci is the Arthur H. Dadian and Ara T. Ozdemel Chair of Armenian Art and Architectural History at Tufts University. She is the author of three books and over 90 articles and essays on medieval Armenian art and architecture, including most recently an introduction to Armenian art published by Oxford University Press in 2018. Maranci has worked on issues of cultural heritage for over a decade with a focus on the at-risk medieval Armenian churches and monasteries in what is now Eastern Turkey. Her interlocutor, Erin Pignon, is a doctoral candidate in Princeton University's Department of Art and Archaeology. Her dissertation studies Ottoman-Armenian painting in 17th century Istanbul. Her forthcoming article titled Lock, Stock and Barrel, Story, Song and Image in Early Modern Vaspurakan considers the role paraliturgical illuminated manuscripts played in the transmission of Armenian historical imagination in the early modern period. They will be discussing Treasures in Heaven, Armenian Illuminated Manuscripts, edited by Thomas Matthews and Roger Wick, published in 1994 by New York and Princeton. They'll answer questions like, how did the exhibition Treasures of Heaven, its catalog, the symposium, and the subsequent volume change the scene of Armenian studies in Anglophone academia? What was it like to attend the exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum in 1994? What is the premier site of Armenian painting? And last, how has the relationship between Byzantine and Armenian studies evolved over the years from the 1990s to 2020 and beyond? I would like to ask Christina why you have selected Treasures in Heaven, Armenian Illuminated Manuscripts, edited by Thomas Matthews and published in 1994. Why did you select this book and how has it inspired your work? Thank you so much. Um, thank you, Anna, and thank you for this invitation to, to talk about um, a, a, a book that, that made a big impact, particularly with one of my favorite graduate students, Erin Pignon. Um, so why, why Treasures in Heaven? Yes. Um, this book has um, importance for me um, personally and, uh, and also for the field in general. So Treasures in Heaven, the exhibition, and the exhibition catalog and the associated conference all came out in the early 90s, early middle 90s. And that was when there was a kind of concentration of armenologists in New York City and, and in the United States that really laid the groundwork for for the field in many ways as it has uh, developed in Anglophone, in Anglophone circles. 
So I, I encountered the book as a graduate student and and then I started using it to teach with. Erin is one of those, uh, one of my former students with whom I used it. Anyway, so so it represents a lot of important work and also it's it was important to me as a young scholar. Thank you very much. Did you select any specific chapters you would like to discuss during this brief podcast of ours today? Oh, you know, I'm going to say we're going to talk about it all. We're going to talk about the catalog. Yeah, we're we're going to cover everything. We're going to cover everything. When we're done, even though it's brief, you're going to know everything. (laughs) So, yeah, or we'll probably jump around. But, yeah, we're we're going big or we're going home. (laughs) <laughs> and I'll just I'll just follow up on what Christina said and thank you for your kind words Christina and thank you for the invitation to talk today. Yeah, this is this also had a huge impact on me um and like Christina said she taught me and exposed me to the rich world of Armenian manuscript painting, which I'm, you know, writing my dissertation on today, um, and will continue to work on for a very long time. So this was a very formative text for me uh, in all its component parts, not just as an exhibition catalog, but as this collection of conference proceedings that, you know, I was, I was excited as I was rereading some of this material because you know, I have scans that Christina uploaded to Blackboard or whatever platform we were using in 2009, perhaps, when I first, when I first read some of these essays. Um, and of course, I have, you know, I have the text with me here today as books. And just even the experience of rereading this took me back a decade, which was fantastic. And, and these are works that I still read every year, every semester, and revisit constantly because some of the threads that were drawn are still very relevant today. Wonderful. So I was wondering, uh, since uh, I guess that Armenian scholarship, uh, the scholarship of, on Armenian art rather, has been influenced by the, the scholarship on Byzantine studies, on a Byzantine art actually. So what is... Uh, um, that you feel that the book has, offers, that is precious and invaluable for Byzantine studies as well? This is a big question, and you can discuss it in whichever way you want. That's a great question. You know, I, I want, and it actually allows me to back up a little bit, because really the first person to do the study of Armenian manuscript art in the United States was Sirar Pidanesesian. And of course, she, cha- she trained as much as a Byzantinist as an Armenologist, and, and among Byzantinists, and of course, is, um, is someone near and dear to Dumbarton Oaks. So, you know, Sirar Pidanesesian was that sort of, what I would see as a kind of first generation of our. Armenian art historians or art, histor- his, art historians of Armenia in the United States and produced this wonderful rich English language literature for us all to, to look at. And she was, again, closely connected to things Byzantine. So working on everything from an Armenian treatise on uh, iconoclasts to artistic historical relations between the seventh century Etchmiads and Gospels and and Byzantine manuscripts or Bagratid illumination and its relation to Byzantine art. 
So she sort of laid the groundwork for those questions, and then they were taken up by people like Tom Matthews and Helen Evans and Anne-Marie Whale Carr. So, so I think that what's, what's wonderful about this work in the 1990s is that, and that includes East of Byzantium, the Dumbarton Oaks Symposium as well, which is sort of part of this, this, this collection of books. It's part of that sort of moment in, in American Armenian studies. But the point was that, that after that, after CRP, you have people who are asking questions about those relations between Armenia and Byzantium, like Tom Matthews, as I mentioned, or Anne-Marie Whale Carr, and asking them and deepening those questions, asking new questions. But it goes back to CRP, I think, in many ways. So, and now those questions are getting more complex. So, so I guess what I wanted to say was that what was wonderful about the 90s is that there, it was a moment when people were studying Armenian art for its own sake, within its own context. And that was also the goal of the East of Byzantium Symposium. But when you do that, you realize the amazing connections with Byzantine culture, with Byzantine history, with Byzantine art. But it's done in a deeper, richer way because now you, you, know, you, you understand the, what Armenia and what Armenian art is on its own terms. So it's not just a formal resemblance as, oh, this drapery looks Byzantine. There's something more that you can say because you understand what, let's say, Bagrated political motives were. So I think that Byzantinists, it would be recommended for them to look at the Treasures in Heaven series because of the ways it complicates some of the questions that CRP, Derno Sessian, once asked about Byzantine-Armenian relations and so much more too beyond Byzantium. I have to say that the the volume, um, at least the catalog, opens with opens with this meditation on how to describe Armenian art from the point of the Armenians. Uh, so the so it's very all these manuscripts are well contextualized within their liturgical settings, and I mean even Tom Matthews writes that these should be described from an Armenian point of view. C- and conforming to the evolution of the Armenian people. So I think just as the the exhibition kind of contextualizes and presents these works in that vein, they also look out to what is called outsider influence and kind of mediates these signs of dependence on other artistic traditions. Wonderful. Erin, so I wanted to, I, I'm so, curious to know um, about your reactions uh, to Treasures in Heaven um, and associated books now, because when I taught this material to you many, many years ago, it was, it was a kind of a different world, right? I mean, we're talking about the early 2000s and, you know, it's 2020 now which is amazing to think about. But so much has happened in art history. So much has happened in Armenian art and Byzantine art and medieval art more generally. So, I mean, I I think that we can read these essays and appreciate them, but I think too, lots of things have changed. So I just, I wonder for you as, as as a younger scholar and emerging scholar, how you might sort of comment on these these essays and any you know picking anything you wanted and just you know just your reactions great um 
Yeah, I mean, I do feel in a way very emotional revisiting Treasures in Heaven because like I said at our opening, this is where it all started for me. So as you as you introduce the listeners, I studied with you, studied under you at Tufts, where this is, I mean, the first images of Armenian painting, Armenian architecture, ivory, I mean, everything was done in your classroom. And I still have the PowerPoints to prove it all backed up on many hard drives. But yeah, this text in many ways today, I mean, I guess when I, when I started, this was part of a corpus in English that I could access with a rich bibliography. And really, you know, we should mention that this exhibition only covered 88 illuminated manuscripts in North America. So this is an incredibly small corpus of the 30,000 plus existing surviving Armenian manuscripts today, but incredibly, incredibly diverse across genre, across time period, across style. So really, I, you know, when we were talking about what, what texts to discuss today, uh, it, it was kind of a no-brainer because this really does include so much. So I have to say that the impact was long-lasting because, like I said, I'm still studying Armenian painting today. But now, when, when I read this text and, when I, and the individual essays, I look at it as a jumping-off point. And I ask different questions of what I'm reading because now there is an established corpus. And I think of this as being one major bookend of... American exhibition history of Armenian art. So, of course, two years ago, Helen Evans, who also participated in this volume, organized and exhibited a, a major show of Armenian art in the United States at the Metropolitan. So, I like to think of those as kind of as these two exhibits and their text as sisters to to this long line of Armenian study of Armenian painting of Armenian art period. So when I was reading some of these, I, I or rereading, I should say, I saw certain lines that stood out to me at every stage in my academic career. So not just as an undergrad, but as a master's student. Um, and in the time between my, my master's and my PhD, when I was teaching this material at American University of Armenia, and I assigned some of these pieces, uh, which was, again, like very important for me to carry that line in, in Yerevan. So some things that have stood out to me are just these calls. The, I mean, the, there are areas that are open for research particularly in, in both the exhibition catalog and, and the essay volume, Alice Taylor's work on, on 13, 14, 15th century Vaspura Khan, Lake Vaughan area illumination has totally impacted my study. The first kind of five years of graduate work have been devoted to that. And then now my dissertation is, is mostly launched from lines in Sylvie Marion and Helen Evans' late, late Armenian painting in the diaspora. So I kind of have covered and answered a lot of questions for myself in my own work that were posed in some of these essays, and there's still so much work to be done. Thank you. That's, that's wonderful. That, that 
Yeah, I find that very moving. And you remind me, Erin, of when I, as a hapless Princeton graduate student myself, took the train into <laughs> New York to the symposium. And this is my question for ah. you. I, I'd love to know your experience of, of viewing the exhibit and seeing the symposium and, and having this atmosphere <laughs> around you. Yeah, I, you know, I think um, now I'm, I'm an old lady, but I look back and I think, I wish I knew what I know now because I would have looked at it all in a different way. I was starstruck. I mean, I, I remember going to the symposium, seeing Helen Evans, James Russell, Nina Garsoyan, Kwikor Maksudjian, you know, Sylvie, so many people, Alice, Anne-Marie, and thinking, oh my gosh, this is, this is what can be done. I mean, it just seemed amazing to me. Also to remember that in the 90s, graduate students didn't, there wasn't so much of conference going, let alone conference presenting that graduate students were doing. So I was, I was really starstruck and I was amazed at the, the ex exhibition. It was a bit of a haze for me. Now I look back, I had just started at Princeton. It was 94, I think it was 94 that the exhibition happened, if I'm not wrong. I remember being very young and just, just, <laughs> um, just being over overwhelmed. So it took me a long time um, because my, my thesis was on architecture, but really it was in my first few years of teaching that I started to, to really to use it. And what I found so amazing about the, the exhibition catalog and then the associated collected papers was how, how teachable they were. You know, it was so, to this day, I use Tom Matthews' essay on the Etchmiads and Gospels and what he says about how the apocryphal literary tradition may have informed the iconography of the imagery. And as Erin knows, I make my students act out the Armenian version of the infancy gospel. So one person plays Gabriel, the other person plays the Virgin. I think there's a narrator too. And it brings this material to life. So that to me, to me, ultimately, it's the social questions that were asked in the, in the catalog. You know, why should we show, you know, for example, why should we show the wedding at Cana the way we do? What's the relationship between contemporary costume and, you know, thinking about Vasburagan miniature traditions? Why should the Virgin look so skeptical about what Gabriel is telling her uh, about you will bear the Christ child and how we can relate that to contemporary literary traditions? So it's that it brings to life the, um, that's what the scholarship from that period did for me. It brought these images to life in a way that went beyond and went along with, but beyond um, iconography and style, which I dearly love. I love art history, the, the bread and butter of it. But for me, those essays ask the questions about who, why, how, how did it, why does it look the way it does and, and how did it happen that way? So, Which are, of course, things that I take for granted as a graduate student today. I mean, I feel, you know, with this as a foundation uh, and, and so many other pieces outside of this, I've never been stopped from asking wild questions about the way something looks or how a certain type of iconography entered a certain type of genre. Um, you know, this, 
this exhibition and its and its essays really laid a groundwork for asking questions about developments outside of a canon um, in that this developed a canon for us. Erin, I wanted to ask a follow-up question to you because your dissertation, which is so important and fascinating on the Eismo Wurk, uh, which is um, a, would you say, how would you describe, uh, I'm going to let you do it because you're the specialist. <laughs> um, it's, I think the most comparable, um, the most comparable manuscript tradition would be either a Synaxarian mm -hmm. or a Menologian. So a collection of saints' lives uh, organized by date, um, but of course, notably in the Armenian tradition, uh, versus the, the Byzantine tradition, it's, it's one giant manuscript. Uh, so things are not separated, uh, you know, first half of the year, second half of the year, like, you know, Basel's, Basel II's Menologian. This is one massive manuscript. So, so this actually brings me to my question, because you may not even be aware of it, but I can see it because, because of the long view. But your knowledge of classical Armenian, your close engagement with the philology of the Armenian tradition, you know, of liturgy has changed. It, it means that you're working in a way that's a little bit different from that, I think, the earlier generation of art historians in that you are as immersed in the texts and the textual traditions as you are in the image. Could you talk a little bit about, about that? Because what I, I what I loved about Treasures in Heaven is how it really focused on the images and um, and the codicology. But now what you're doing is you are um, you're integrating a deep attention to the text as well and and the liturgy. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because I see that I actually see that what you're doing is emblematic of a change in the scholarship towards you know more attention to to texts and and ease with the textual as well as the visual traditions. So more interdisciplinarity, more, you know, yeah. And I don't know whether you, you see yourself as doing that, but you are. So I don't know if just, just maybe. Talk. No, thank you. Thank you. Because this is actually something that I struggle with as um, presenting as an art historian, because I feel like I have, you know, a foot in all of these doors as I try to bring this project together. So thank you for asking, because this is something that I think through a lot. And I have to thank, you know, all of my advisors over the years for one, you, I distinctly remember you saying, you need to learn Armenian, you need to read Armenian scholarship. And at the time, you know, I was just finishing at Tufts and I was about to start uh, a master's program at SMU. And I was like, I cannot learn this language. I, I mean, I cannot. And yeah, of course, 10 years later, you yeah, know. And now look at you. Yeah. Well, yeah, but and I'm still ever, you know, ever learning. So, you know, I have to thank, you know, my time spent in Yerevan learning modern Armenian. My time, you know, poor Sergio Laporta has, has struggled to hear some of my pronunciation of classical Armenian uh, and Michael Pfeiffer and, you know, my... My art history advisors, uh, Pamela Patton, Charlie Barber, Beatrice Kitzinger, they've all asked questions about use. So I've I've been pushed in, in terms of language acquisition and you know really reading and understanding these these objects, which I which I understand holistically as objects. And I think that's kind of where this 
urge to understand the liturgical use uh, of the manuscript comes in because it's not just something that's read, it's something that's touched and carried and pages are turned. Um, all of you have really uh, pushed me to know like, okay, this is a hymnal. Is it a shadok notes as it's called in the Armenian tradition or is it a hymnal? And even, even the language of dealing with the names of genres uh, has been so difficult to to parse and to understand and to present to an English-speaking world. And one of the things that I'm pushing for in all of my work is, you know, I'm trying not to use the word hymnal. I'm trying not to use the word, you know, uh, synaxarian. I'm trying to use the Armenian words, the Armenian names of these genres because they're performing in highly specialized, ritualized Armenian language context. And their images are performing on the page, you know, embedded into a text whose recitation is so layered and so regulated. So a lot of what I'm doing is using you know, using classical Armenian, Kudapar, uh, trying to unpack the liturgy, trying to understand uh, the image text relationship on the page. And then again, the physiognomical act of reading. I mean, you know, how one is affected by the book and how one affects the book in return. So, I mean, I'm grateful to to now draw from all of these different fields of study and yeah. methodological approaches. Um, and it also yeah. means a lot of, you know, code switching in your writing and mm -hmm. in your ability to, to intake and yeah. filter it through this devotional apparatus, which is the manuscript. So sometimes I feel like I'm an art historian last, which is very hard yeah. to manage. But <laughs> and, and to that end, I, I wanted to ask you a question about painting. Oh. Um, because these, what we are talking about today, I mean, these are all manuscripts. They're painted objects. And, you know, I do have a few bones to pick with this text <laughs> in that it presents the Armenian gospel book as the premier site mm -hmm. of Armenian painting yeah. and, you know, the primary vehicle of Armenian artistic excellence. And um, I think that you're working on very interesting painting and very, uh, and what your work is very experimental. So I would like to hear yeah. about the methodologies and the painting that you deal with every day ah. that is that cannot be exhibited yeah. at the Morgan. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that's a that's a great question. Okay, so a couple of things. And and then I'll get to my question in return. But yeah, you're right. So so the focus, which is made very clear in Treasures in Heaven, is the gospel book. And I think as you say, it has a lot to do with what's in American collections. So and maybe what is, you know, statistically the most um, abundant of, of uh, manuscript genre type for Armenian manuscript type, but there are so many others. And so this is where your work is so important and, and others who are looking beyond. So maybe at the Armenian Alexandra romance or medical texts or, 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 or what have you. My work, so you mentioned my work and my recent work I've done on wall painting um, and, and using software to, to uncover more painting. To me, it's, 
it's been so important for me to have this this scholarship, both Treasures in Heaven scholarship and all the scholarship on Armenian manuscript painting to to sort of consider. There's so many because and just for 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 people who are listening, there there is not a whole lot of it's not like in Byzantium where there's a lot of wall painting or mosaics. There are fewer examples that survive from Armenia, but that idea is is sort of premised upon well how much have we been ignoring so there may be much more out there that we're not aware of but um because we have the published corpus of armenian wall painting is so small we need to look for iconography we need to look at manuscripts so so the so the kinds of questions the examples that i find in publications like um treasures in heaven but many others many other exhibition catalogs has been really important for me as reference um, I, I think I ask some of the same questions, like, why, why does this look the way it does? Who made it? Um, where's the style coming from? Um, and, and why is it, what did, how, what's purpose did it serve in the liturgy? Um, so, so lots of similar questions. Now I wanted to just turn for a moment, um, cause one thing we haven't talked about which really marks a distinction between the days of Treasures in Heaven and now is the change in um, the sort of global turn and how that's um, changed the way we view Armenian art. And, and I just want to sort of preface this by saying that in the 90s, and um, I mean, I think already Byzantium was like on the edge. So if you did Byzantine art, oh, well, you, and you tried to get a job as a medievalist, you really have to make great, great case for yourself. Forget about Armenia. You know, it's like, I remember being told, you have three strikes against you, Christina. You're, you'd study Armenia, you study architecture, and you study historiography. So you're out <laughs> next. But the thing is, so much has changed now. Um, and we could talk about sort of why that is, but when Treasures in Heaven was published, this was, it was, you think about, it, that was fairly daring for, for, to come out with these projects that are focused solely and unabashedly and un, you know, unashamedly on Armenia when you have, you know, big catalogs on the Italian Renaissance or something like that. So, what I loved about it is you don't hear a whole lot of uh, justification, explanation for why this is important. It's showing Armenia in context. Now I think for both Byzantium and Armenia, there's we're on there's a different playing field now because of the global turn. So I wonder, Aaron, having said all that, do you feel that when you go out and you you give papers or you know do people ask well, why Armenia or why are you studying that you know yeah, just maybe talk a little bit about how how you've had to negotiate the canon or not. Maybe you haven't. So, uh, yeah, no, I feel very grateful for the entrance of Armenian art into a medieval corpus uh, before my time, and I do think that the move now is is kind of zooming out to context. And maybe, and you know, who knows if this is right or wrong, but the Armenian apostolic tradition is in the world of the Christian East. And I do sense kind of a movement now to contextualize not only Armenian art amongst, you know, in time, but now I see a contextualization in, in context. You know, I'm grateful at Princeton to, you know, be in a cohort of medievalists who work 
and can work on manuscripts, Ethiopian manuscripts in the Ge'ez tradition and Byzantine manuscripts and our, and I'm doing Armenian. And in that world, we can add scholars who are working on Syriac manuscripts and Coptic manuscripts. And we can draw a line uh, maybe horizontally instead of comparing medieval to medieval uh, in terms of chronology, but um, how these manuscripts were used and what traditions they were used in. So that's kind of more the the late antique and medieval globalism, but my work is my work is early modern, and it's characterized by by Armenian populations living in major cities that they're not indigenous to. And one thing that I'm always surprised with this volume is that in Helen Evans and Sylvie Marion's essay, they title it "Art of the Diaspora," Armenian art of the diaspora, and they're talking about you know, not the diaspora that our modern colleagues discuss in their work, you know, a 20th century diaspora. They're talking about Istanbul as, as, the, as the Ottoman capital. They're talking about New Julfa, Isfahan, in uh, the Safavid Empire, Crimea, and Aleppo. And that, those are the diasporas they're talking about. And something that I'm trying to take into, I guess, my global this global perspective is the development of diasporic nodes and very distinct stylistic traditions that are that are growing a Constantinopolitan style, which is defined in this volume, uh, and it's something that I'm taking with me into my dissertation and and working with very directly. But to know that there are these individualized and very specific Armenian painting traditions that kind of grow out of each other is really important. And you can see that they're interconnected. So for example, in my work, I'm looking at, uh, like we mentioned before, a Heismavork, this, this very large collection of saints' lives. And I'm focusing on you know, the Constantinopolitan Heismavork, one that's made in the 17th century in Istanbul. But I'm comparing it with concurrent, simultaneous traditions that are happening in Vaspurakan, in Eastern Anatolia, in Aleppo, in Nujulfa, and comparing those styles among themselves. And these are Armenian, these are all Armenian manuscripts, but they are deeply, deeply influenced by their local host. Uh, So this is kind of how I'm taking it. And I feel like as I go out into the world, I mean, now people know where Armenia is on the map, (laughs) which is a great feeling. I mean, when I started, uh, when I started, no one knew, I mean, when I went to Armenia in 2014, people didn't know where Armenia was. So, um, could you please uh, tell us, uh, both of you, from your perspective, why do you think that Armenia has been more included now and why Armenian studies have become um, more part of the canon? Well, as um, as the, I'll take the senior privilege here, um, and uh, I think a couple things. I have thought about this, you know, a fair amount because, again, when I was a grad student, nobody wanted to hear about it. Um, so, I think one of the reasons is the is this global turn, which means that you know the global Middle Ages. It's 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 all great because you have all these volumes and events and, and conferences and things to do with things global. It means 
I do a lot of contributing to volumes on Armenian, you know, on landscape and Armenia, or, you know, this and that and Armenia. And it's, it's been wonderful for my career. I've certainly been able to stack up the publications and, and, and speaking engagements that way. And again, one could have a whole other podcast on, on what the global turn means and what are the, what are the, the, some of the, the, the less positive and more cynical takes on it. But for, for Armenia, it's, it's meant that it is part of, unashamedly part of, of, a, of an understanding, a revised understanding of the Middle Ages. And that's good. I mean, I, I, I think that's, that is just good. For Armenian studies more broadly and thinking diachronically into the modern period, I think there's also something to be said about changes in, in attitudes towards the Armenian genocide and that there is more acceptance of that as a as a as a as a phenomenon and a fact as there was in the 90s and and you know i mean i I certainly felt it there is much more resistance to that idea there is less now there's more so so i feel like there are a few things happening there but for art history i would say that the the biggest change has been we don't have to apologize anymore explain anymore why the subject is important that uh, you know and that's so that's been i think that's been great and i'll just put a plug in here for our, for our me- things armenian this stuff is amazing so now that we have people who <laughs> we have people who are you know reading the texts and 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 doing careful work there's so much of it whether we're talking about manuscripts or churches or metalwork there's just so much textiles that you could work forever and not get to the bottom of it. And that's what's happening. So, you know, when I come, when I come to DC, I'm coming to Dumbarton Oaks and I'm going to work on some of your objects that are Armenian and um, I'm going to enjoy that. So there's just, it's, it's the richness of the, the corpus. It's the change in the attitude towards, towards Armenian things. And I think it's this political change too that's happened over the last couple of decades. That's my, that's my take on it. Christina, I have to quickly follow up and really push you and emphasize this act of looking and how many things we have to look at and what has been overlooked. And so, you know, we were discussing your the painting at Ani Cathedral before. And the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, we have this corpus of Armenian art before us and it is structured in a way or was structured for us for us to not look at churches or to not look at maybe, you know, I can't wait to get my paws on some textiles. I'm so excited, but you know, there, there is a hierarchy that has, that has affected all of us. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm still studying manuscript painting and I will um, because there is so much to look at, but even in manuscript painting there, you know, the gospels are up here and everything else is down here. Cilicia's up here. Everything else is down here. So can you talk about relearning how to look at things? Because like I kind of mentioned before, you know, I've been, you know, I have all these catalogs before me. I can go to the archive and say, this is, I like this. This brings up issues to me and I'm allowed to study it. Can you talk about, you know, going through the process of now forcing other people to look at things because now we can see them? Yeah. Well, I love that question because, as you know, I like to get on my soapbox about looking. I learn things every day about the monuments I work on. I discover new things almost every day. And even just tonight, I'm going to give a lecture on Ani Cathedral and 
and some new things that are there that haven't got attention. Sometimes, as, 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 as you may know, some of the most famous monuments are the ones we ignore, or not ignore, but we don't see them. We don't look, we're not curious in the same ways. And so one, the one thing I would say, and I think this is, you know, this is my little uh, sermon, is that it's really important to take the time and not think you know everything, but just have that curiosity. I think of, I think of writing my, my next book as a dissertation. I think of it as I don't assume I know a monument. That's very important. I don't assume I know it. I'm always curious. I always look with open eyes. And it is amazing what you get when you do that. But if you keep kind of assuming, and that takes place in a split second, if you keep assuming, oh, I know that piece of wall, I know that inscription, I know that, you know, manuscript, you don't look the same way. So I think of it a little like shopping back in the days when we went into <laughs> stores. You know, you have to have an eye. You have to just keep looking. You never know what you're going to find. Well, and trends, trends are cyclical, right? Um, exactly. so we see, so we see, you know, a study on one thing and it being dropped for 30 years and then being picked up again by, by graduate students. So exactly. I have another question uh, uh, that has to do with um, uh, the relationship. I don't want to use the word tension, if there is any, between uh, Byzantine studies and Armenian studies. So um, uh, how would you describe this relationship back uh, in the 90s, maybe, and now almost 30 years later? Uh, that's a great question. I'm just going to speak my mind here. <laughs> I have to say that in the 90s, there was a, I got a strong sense. I love my Byzantinists, first of all, let me just say that. But there was this sense, more of a sense that everything emanated out of Constantinople. There is this kind of, uh, there's kind of this nuclear energy plant in the middle of the Hagia Sophia, God rest her soul, <laughs> that kind of emanated out. And so by the time you get to Armenia, let alone Cap, you know, you know, Cappadocia, but when you get to Armenia, it's just that you're just working on this tiny little bandwidth, barely anything. And there was that, so there was that strong sense of kind of center periphery. And I, you know, again, I, I love my Byzantinist friends, but it was always sort of like, I had to make the case. I had to sort of make a case for a connection to a connection to a connection somehow to Constantinople. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking freely here. We're among friends. But I think, you know, over the years, and it was gradual, over the years, that, that changed. So it, it started to change when we started talking about social history and patronage. And we, we said to ourselves, okay, you know, this Armenian patron is not just under the influence of Byzantium. This patron is using Byzantine ideas in a particular way to advance his own ideas, his own ambitions, his own message. So as soon as we started turning it around, and I feel like that, that again, hits about in 1980s for art history, 1990s and, and early 2000s in, in my own context, once that started happening, it started to put Armenia on its own ground and actually started to make other very interesting connections with, with um, Constantinople. So I'm not, I haven't thought it through entirely, but that definitely there was, there is a shift that's, that is ongoing. And as a result, we're learning much more, I think, about Byzantium now from a different point of view. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a two-way relationship, I think, whereas before, and even in Treasures in Heaven, like I said before, uh, there's this this line that says, you know, we shouldn't look at the signs of dependence our Armenian artistic traditions have, but uh, read Armenian art on its own terms. And I do feel like for the last at least decade, it's kind of been how how do I case my objects and my study into these these more established fields, the big brother of of Armenian art. And so it's it's been very welcoming to to speak thematically and like I said before, horizontally, addressing similar concerns in um individual painting traditions. Um, because Byzantium has things that Armenia doesn't have. Armenia has things that Byzantium doesn't have, but the conversation is going both ways. And I think if we can meet in the middle, it's, we can have in Cappadocia. In Cap- yeah, exactly. Everyone <laughs> wants to go there. Yeah. That's actually where I should have quarantined this whole time. I wish I was in a, somewhere in a carved rock enclosure. But exactly, you know, if we can understand these relationships a bit more a bit better and use objects, visual objects to understand them, I feel like the relationship becomes much more cooperative. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so Christina and Erin, um, um, what would you like, you know, what would you like to, to end uh, this podcast with? I'd like to ask Christina where she sees, I mean, you know, yes. I'm so indebted to these powerhouse scholars like Christina who have set the, I mean, who have set the tone of the field that I study in today, who have opened doors and have taken me from, you know, 18 to today. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I'd like, I'd like to know, Christina, where are you, where are you taking us? What's the next turn in our, in our journey? Yeah, you know, I, all this time that we've been talking, I've been thinking, what, what's, what's, what about 2040? You know, let's meet again in 2040 and have another, maybe we'll be on a different planet. I don't know. Maybe we won't be around. But it's so true. I mean, it's, you know, every, every, maybe every generation kind of congratulates itself on being more enlightened than the next. Uh, although these days, who knows? Um, but it does, you do wonder what's, What's next for the field? I feel like we're doing so well right now. You know, we have students like you who are who are deep into the texts and the images, who are trying to understand um, conceptually, you know, what's happening between cultures, within cultures, within Armenia. So what's next? I don't know, machine learning? I have no idea. This is, I'm not even going to, to speculate on it, but what I will say is that something that is, that is happening, I think, is, a, is an understanding that objects, monuments, manuscripts have finite lives. So maybe one, one thing that, that will be all increasingly a part of our study is, is sort of a respect for the physical object, respect for the monument, knowing that like us, they may not always be around. And the job of, of the scholar, of the art historian, in, is to is to to make sure we understand as much as we can. You know what can these things teach us? So that's that's something that I have increasingly in in my mind um, going forward. 
So yeah, just and with the with the news as it is, I'm, I I I think about that. Just you know how much we still have to learn and um, how important it is to to care for the objects and the monuments that are that are teaching us. And hopefully our listeners know the tremendous work that you've done on Marin Cathedral. Uh, because, I mean, we do have to be, um, yeah, we have to fight for, for our monuments, for their history. We have to maintain it. We have to cultivate it. And we have to, you know, drag the past into the present, uh, not only with, with how we care for these things, but the questions that we ask of them and how they influence our scholarship. And, and right back at you, Aaron, with your work at the Matanadaran. I mean, you, you care about these objects as physical objects, and, and, and that's an important part of what you do. So, so I think we, can, we, we are agreed on that, warmly agreed. It's wonderful. I mean, it's wonderful to, to end the podcast on such an optimistic note for, for the humanities in general. So it sounds like you are very optimistic about the future. So yeah. let's hope that, uh, that uh, this, uh, this optimism becomes true <laughs> in the end. That's what I try to say. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, both of you for a very lively podcast and uh, for taking us to Armenia, which was an area we hadn't covered at all during our other uh, two podcasts. Uh, apart from the fact that uh, your discussion was on art history, which is also a field that we wanted, but Armenia... Anna, Judy, I have to thank both of you for organizing this and for wrangle wrangling us we're a difficult duo to yeah. <laughs> to keep on track. You did good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Podcast musical theme is from the Concerto in E-flat, Dumberton Oaks by Igor Stravinsky, recorded by the Smithsonian Chamber Orchestra, Kenneth Slowick conducting. This is actually the end of our summer podcast series. Stay tuned for more online activities from the Byzantine Studies program at Dumberton Oaks.